This is a podcast about smart women doing smart things in and for Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Fiona Mattesini, and I've spent the past few years as a journalist and writer in this beautiful and fascinating part of the world. Ultimately, this is a podcast that celebrates women who are smashing the glass ceiling. So look out and you better wear shoes. My next guest is Peggy Chan, a plant-based chef consultant and a sustainability thought leader. In fact, Peggy is the authority on food sustainability in Asia and has been an early adopter for eating ethically and reducing food waste. Over the last few years, she's been recognised globally for the work she's done to pioneer plant-based gastronomy in Hong Kong and for her commitment to local and low-waste food supply chains. Peggy was born in Hong Kong, partially raised in Canada, and did her chef training at Le Cordon Bleu's Ottawa Outpost before returning to Hong Kong in 2007. She's worked at some of Hong Kong's most celebrated establishments, including those at the Peninsula and the Four Seasons. She then launched two legendary plant-based restaurants, First Grassroots Pantry, one of Hong Kong's first high-end vegan restaurants, which then morphed into fine dining and eco-conscious concept Nectar, which, by the way, was recognised by the United Nations Sustainable Development Group as a best practice case study. In 2016, Peggy created The Collective's Table, a series of pop-up dinners and collaborations, challenging her peers to prepare a multi-course menu using only vegetarian ingredients with part of the proceeds going towards a charity of each chef's choice. The pop-ups popped up in locations from Manila to Shanghai to Melbourne, with a host of highly respected chefs becoming involved. Peggy then left the kitchen to launch Grassroots Initiatives, a sustainable food consultancy for the hospitality industry, helping food service companies shift to a circular model of operation from sourcing supplies to staff training and waste management. In addition to all of this, she's written a beautiful and extremely well-received plant-based cookbook, Provenance, and I'll link into that in the show notes in case anyone wants to buy a copy. She's now Executive Director of Zero Foodprint Asia, working collaboratively with farmers, restaurateurs, chefs and diners and academics to create a transparent and traceable food system for the future tackling systemic food production issues at both a local and global level. Peggy has spoken at TEDx, is an alumni of Global Shapers Hong Kong, the World Economic Forum, and was nominated for the Basque Culinary World Prize in 2019. In short, Peggy is one of Southeast Asia's most inspiring and proactive food pioneers. In fact, it's fair to say that her work is transforming the way people eat and the way businesses work. Peggy, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome you into the pod. Thanks, Fiona. It's great to be here. Can I start by taking you back to your previous life in commercial kitchens, which probably seems a long time ago now? You launched Grassroots Pantry in 2011, and although there were a few vegetarian eateries, there was nothing sort of high-end or with a fine dining skew. Within three months, Grassroots was constantly full, trying to meet demand, and there was a lot of press mostly because you were one of the few women-run establishments. In 2015, you then moved the restaurant to Hollywood Road in Hong Kong. Looking back, it was a huge success, but actually you took a really big risk. 
I want to ask, how did it feel to be a young woman taking a risk like that without any outside financing or substantial support, let's say? At the beginning, it was quite difficult because I was working a very comfortable corporate job, you know, in five-star hotels. So um, that fear really kind of, you know, bled onto me as well. And I had, I started to have fears for myself. And also, um, mainly, it's the fear of judgment, you know, um, fear of judgment about whether people would accept this type of concept, um, you know, the slow food, farm to table type of concept that we were trying to introduce. And also fear of like people not understanding whether this was even practical you know, whether sustainability of running an operation like that uh, would even be feasible. So at the beginning, it was really tough, um, mainly the first two years of operations. I just remember, you know, getting up at six and getting to work by seven. Um, and then it was nonstop all the way until one or two a.m. And so mostly I had about like three hours of sleep really for 18 months straight. Oh, my goodness. And that in itself is really, really tough. And it's so interesting to hear you talk about doubting yourself and having that fear. And um, I, I'm sure that so many people can relate to that. And of course, then you're having to manage people. And, you know, as you say, you're going from a corporate job where someone's managing you to suddenly you're the boss. Um, can you talk to me about the farming communities that actually inspired and motivated you to to actually do this? I mean, you would be surprised that in Hong Kong, just 40 years ago, we actually produce about 50% of the vegetables we eat. But nowadays, we produce less than 1.6%. So like I said, I left the corporate job because of, I guess, an eat, pray, love moment. And of course, I had already been studying, you know, on my own about food sustainability, food politics. And it was this kind of urge for me to do something about it um, at the end of 2010, I believe, that when I left the corporate world, back then I was in Tokyo, actually. And coming back to Hong Kong, um, I realized that actually Hong Kong does have a local farming community. And so I spent basically a couple of months in, into getting to know them and visiting the farms, understanding um, the culture, the agriculture um, and then understanding how they operate currently and what their challenges were. So it was really through kind of talking and communicating with them. That's when I start to really get involved. Despite very little government support, smallholder farmers are still tending to their land and they're still doing their work. So we have to give voice to their work as well. That is an astonishing statistic. 50%. 40 years ago, that Hong Kong was sustaining its own food cycle. Wow. And I love the fact that you referenced uh, Eat, Love, Pray. I hope I've got those the right way around. I remember reading that book. And Eat, it was, Pray, Love. Eat, Pray, Love. That's it. Sorry. Uh, very, very inspiring. And presumably, all of this eventually inspired you to moving into Zero Foodprint. Can you just explain Zero Foodprint to listeners? Zero Footprint is basically was started by um, restaurateurs in California, and it's a nonprofit organization um, promoting regenerative agriculture. So very often, as restaurant people don't actually know, especially in cities like Hong Kong, we don't actually know where food comes from, how food is grown. Um, and so it's that kind of lack of awareness and that disconnect that has created a lot of the food problems that we currently face, right? 
So what we do is uh, Zero Footprint um, hosts a crowdfunding program, um, and we gather funds from our member food businesses, such as restaurants and cafes and food retailers. And then these members pledge 1% of every restaurant purchase to Zero Footprint's uh, Restore Fund. And this fund then gets granted to farmers to apply regenerative farming practices that is proven to grow better food, retain soil health, as well as draw down carbon from the atmosphere. The fact that it's a part crowdfunded initiative is really inspiring as well. So us two appear to have several things in common because back in 2016, I opened a lunchtime vegetarian concept as a sort of passion project. And like you, I didn't describe it as vegetarian because of the connotations of that word. And I should add, I'm not a trained chef at all. So I'm nowhere near your standard. But um I was nodding vociferously when I read comments um, that you'd made in press about, I guess, chef snobbery when it comes to vegetarian food and this notion that only chefs who cook with meat are real chefs, quote unquote. I wondered, what do you think about the upsurge of this sort of lab-made, plant-based um, sort of fake meats and fishes? Because I've been vegetarian since I was about 10, 12 years old. I'm not a fan, um, but they're in business terms, they're gaining a huge part of market share, certainly here in the UK. I wondered what your, your thoughts were on sort of fake meat, fake fish. It's a really relevant question, first and foremost, because, um, you know, what we call fake meat or mock meat is something that was created at the beginning with Buddhist monks and nuns. And it was a concept originated by them. You know, these Buddhist monks and mon nuns created uh, soy and wheat gluten type foods um, as re meat replacements, as protein replacements. But then just even 10 years ago, they were mocked, you know, um, whenever there's Buddhist vegetarian restaurants, people mock the type of mock meats that they serve. And now everyone's just jumping on board, um, trying to capitalize on it. So there's a form of cultural appropriation that I think is really, really wrong, um, where now everyone's just taking the idea and then creating their own and trying to capitalize on it and make money out of it, which that's the thing that really annoys me most. But also just the fact that, you know, the way that we are creating these products based on the same economic that has driven loss in biodiversity, soil uh, degradation, water pollution, social injustice. It's the same economic system that rewards efficiency and productivity, meaning that we've completely devaluated what foods, um, food and its ecosystem services actually yield. We're only looking and basing success on how much farmers can actually grow um, and pressuring farmers to grow an enormous amount of the same type of food crops. So it's these type of practices that I think need to stop and we shouldn't be funding economic systems that enables this um, monocropping, degradation, soil, use of chemicals and GMOs um, to continue. That is such an interesting perspective. And I'm so grateful for people like you that make us think behind what we're eating and actually consider how that food has been produced and the values of that food production. So thank you for explaining that to, to all of us, because I think a lot of us don't really think about it at all, whether we're vegetarian, vegan or, you know, or not. Going back to working at high-end Michelin-style restaurants, I know it's physically grueling. I know so many people who've worked at these type of restaurants. I know quite a few chefs and I know it's hard work. I read an interview where you said, and I'll quote you here, 
I realised that working in a kitchen is not something I could do forever. My body was taking its toll because of my small physique. And I also realised that working as a female chef in the kitchen, it would take double the amount of time to rise up the ranks. That's such a powerful statement. Can we talk about the bully chef? sort of toxic culture that's so pervasive in restaurants, because I also know female chefs who've had a really, really hard time. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I entered the trade 20 plus years ago. So when you're a teenager, your your brain is still going, you know, you're still trying to find yourself and you're still trying to figure out what kind of boundaries you want to draw. You know, I chose this career. I think it's important not to self-victimize bad things will happen regardless of which um, male-dominated industries we live in or we work in. I think that, you know, it's important first and foremost not to self-victimize and, you know, accept what happened, but then also draw those boundaries as we go. Instead of complaining about what the existing culture is, why not let's create the culture we want that's based on fairness and empathy and equality. And I think that that's what women can bring into the kitchens and into the food and beverage um, culture. I remember a time when I was still kind of like a trainee at a five-star luxury hotel, and I was still server in a way. And the captain, I guess my boss back then, um, used demeaning language to speak to servers, and it was vulgar. And I thought that that wasn't acceptable. But like, who am I to speak up, right? Um, Me as a trainee, as a small server. But then to a point, it's like you have to speak up. And I think it's us not speaking up. That's when we continue to allow for our bad behaviors to occur. So just one day I I just told him, like, I'm not going to accept this anymore. Even though the the meaning language wasn't directed towards me, it's important to speak up for others around you. Um, And so I just said, if I hear it again, it's going to HRs. So I think that that's needed. It's to stick out and speak up for others um, as well. I'm so grateful that people do that. And in fact, I've had a situation where I've been in a meeting and I've been continually interrupted and another man has advocated for me and said, please, can you stop interrupting Fiona? Because actually she was speaking and I'm always so grateful whenever anyone um, sticks up for anyone. And this kind of brings me on to the next question because we should also add there are some lovely, very gentle male chefs. I, I know quite a few actually. Can we talk about male cheerleaders and male mentors, because this is another interesting theme. We should all as women lift each other up. But isn't it great when there are some wonderful men that actually are on our side and lift us up and elevate our voices as well? Can can we talk about your male mentors or cheerleaders? One of the person that I consider a mentor to me and also a father figure really came into my life when I was just a teenager, when um, my parents split up. And back then I had felt so abandoned and alone. And so what do you do as a teenager who feels that way? Um, You rebel, right? You do all things that are bad. You skip school, you go and drink, party, whatever you may. And so I think the immediate reaction from other students and teacher would be, oh, she's such a bad student, right? Um, But Mr. Potter, uh, my mentor, he was a guidance counselor of high school. So back then, he was the only person who basically, you know, slipped a note into every teacher's class for me to, to, you know, to be a bit gentle because we don't know what is happening with her. It might be something that's happening 
in her own family and just to be mindful about that. And he really spent time to listen to me, you know, listen to what I was going through. And so I thought like, that's really um, who you need in times of trouble. <laughs> and yeah, so he also became the person who at 19 years old directed me to start my culinary career, which I am still in after 20 years. So I think that um, he really is a guardian angel. And did he, did he actually put those notes, physically put notes into the teacher's books to say, go easy on Peggy? Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. What a lovely man. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how it was done. I, I remember having like just slips, you know, these yellow slips or something like that, you know, like after I had gone to his office and then he would give me these slips and like, yeah, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it was a long time ago. That's so lovely. Are you still in, is he still with us? Are you still in touch with him or? Yes, yes, yes. He is still in, in Ottawa, Canada. He's based there. Yeah, so we just catch up once in a while. That's really lovely. You've achieved so much and you have so much drive, including writing and producing your own cookbook, which um, rather impressively you crowdfunded. It's a wonderful testimony to the work that you put into restaurants and the recipes that you created. It's like a sort of repository of all of your work. The food styling and the photography, I should add, is just stunning. It's like a real coffee table type of book. Did you enjoy the publishing experience? Thank you, Fiona. That makes me feel good <laughs> about it. Because we, <laughs> we really, yeah, we did all of this through remote because it was at the beginning or, well, it wasn't a time where, you know, we could still travel. So the graphic design was based in US and one in Paris. And there was one in England who was doing, an, you know, another part of the job and like translators in Australia. So it was quite interesting, the whole process. Um, I enjoyed it, definitely. I don't know that I would self-publish again, but I think that why we did that was really to prove the crowdfunding process, to kind of try it out, um, because crowdfunding is really a more Western phenomena <laughs> rather than an Asian one. And so I wanted to kind of test the waters to see if people were up for doing that, and that kind of laid the path to Zero Footprint. Um, and yeah, for me, it was... Um, really a closing of the of a chapter uh, for a grassroots pantry uh, because after eight years we've you know indeed and created thousands of recipes and you know I had these recipes what what, what was I going to do you know I wanted to really be able to like put it all together and you know put in a book so that people can use it as kind of like buy it as a souvenir you know the other thing we have in common is I, I had a cookbook that came out in 2010 and that was published in a conventional sense. And when it came round to a second book deal, um, my agent couldn't get me a second book deal because I wasn't really high on social media. I didn't have that profile. It was really, really hard. And there is a company here in the UK, and I'm sure there are loads of companies like this that has a very interesting business model because I was going to work with them. It's called Red Door. And their business model is it's kind of where self-publishing meets conventional publishing. So they will kind of, you part fund your own book, but they kind of have a lot of the conventions of conventional book publishing. So um, I might put that in the show notes in case that's of interest to anybody at all, because it is quite an interesting concept. 
In one interview, I heard you explain why, when you moved to Hong Kong, you worked front of house in restaurants, because in your words, quoting you again, I've always been introverted and I wanted to learn how to speak to people and manage people. I'm really interested in that comment about introversion because I'm an introvert who's taught herself how to be an extrovert when I need to be. I know that you're a prolific public speaker and a frequent panellist at global forums and all kinds of things. I'm one of those people that actually doesn't really like public speaking, but again, I've taught myself how to do it. What advice would you give to other introverts in a workplace setting where, for example, they have to speak publicly? I think that it's important to remind ourselves when we are preparing for these public speaking uh, and panelist opportunities that, you know, whether it's five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes, those minutes aren't about you. And so, I mean, one of those ways is to like not really look at anyone specific in the audience, but look about their heads. That always helps. But like another is like, if I remind myself that this time isn't about me and not to worry about the judgment, but to focus on, you know, the speech and focus on the words and to make it as um, inspiring and as captivating so that, you know, the goal here is then to get people to feel inspired. Who knows how many people you can touch and how many people you can help uh, by you letting those words out, right? So I think that would be my small little advice. (laughs) That's really good advice. And actually what you've said sort of reminds me of my wedding day because I remember feeling really nervous about being looked at because, of course, usually on on a wedding day, people, they do look at the groom, but mostly, let's be honest, they're looking at the bride. And I hated that. I felt so shy about the whole thing and really nervous. Um, And I love what you said about making the message stand out so that people almost, I mean, these are my words, but they almost don't notice the speaker because the message is so powerful. So that's really good advice. Thank you. Interestingly, you were also featured in Forbes magazine, which is incredible. Uh, So congratulations. And the headline, I noticed, referred to you as, quote, outspoken female chef Peggy Chan. Now, I find it curious that when men express their opinions, that's all it is. But when women do this, we tend to have this sort of prefix as outspoken. Do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, that's also one of the kind of gender inequalities that we see in our industry is that, you know, somehow all the white male gets the glory. But when you're an Asian female or just female chef, um, you're somehow that message isn't yours. It might, you know, it's taken by someone else. So yeah, I have a big problem with that. (laughs) Well-behaved women seldom make history. So we got to use our platforms to speak out and to, you know, say the things that matters. Yeah, because I guess in a way it is a compliment. So we could look at it from both angles. That's very generous of you to see it from that angle as well. So what's next for you and Zero Foodprint Asia? Uh, ZFPH just started really in the last eight, nine months. So we've been very, very busy just trying to aggregate academia as well as soy scientists and getting farmers. We're rolling out our first set of grants to farms in the region to apply so that we can help them transition their farms to more regenerative uh, practices. Uh, And then eventually we're also looking at relocation. So Singapore could be one of those options. There's tons of farms in Taiwan as well. So um, as you know, Zero Footprint Asia isn't fixated into one city at the moment, but we kind of 
tackle all of the Mandarin and Chinese-speaking regions at the moment. We just need to keep trekking on. I also wanted to ask, I, I know that Earth Hour is the last Saturday of March. I loved hearing about how you once responded to this uh, back when you were at commercial restaurants cooking by candlelight. Can you just relive that for us and describe what happened? Because it sounds so lovely, although I'm sure it was challenging at the same time. Yeah, I mean, Earth Hour was um, something we started since we, this, since the first year we opened. So it's the last Saturday of March. And what I wanted to introduce was um, something that is low carbon. I mean, in 2012, no one talked about carbon, but, <laughs> you know, low energy um, consumption. What does that mean? That means maybe, you know, using as little gas or electricity as possible. So um, our menu was created to be raw, um, using raw food techniques. And then also we shut off all the lights and we did it, did the whole meal in candlelight. So honestly, it was a lot of fun for us operationally because it was like cooking, like uncooking in the dark, really like putting dishes together in the dark for the customers. It's just, it's such a different experience for them. And you really don't realize how much we rely on, you know, electricity and light to operate in day daily life. So I think that it really does get people to start thinking and to really enjoy it. So yeah, I, I loved every year's Earth Hour was awesome. Um, but it was the last year that we did it in 2019, where I did a menu of 12 courses, and each course highlighted a solution to climate change. And this was inspired by Project Drawdown. Um, so each course was a title, let's say, civil pasture or reducing plastic or, you know, using solar panels, things like that. And you know, the dish itself was then thematically created based on that solution. That's such a creative and inspiring interpretation of how we should all be responding to, to the climate crisis. So that's wonderful to hear about. You've been described as the Alice Waters of Hong Kong. And for those that don't know, Alice is an American chef, restaurateur and author who's largely credited with creating the farm to table movement. Wonderful woman. Your name is synonymous with somebody who I should say, though, is hugely successful in her own right. I mean, you are, you know, a huge success for yourself. Do you feel successful? Wow, well, I, I am humbled by anyone who puts Miss Alice Waters' name next to me. That's insane. Um, she is an inspiration. Do I feel successful? Honestly, I don't like I don't look at success the same way as most people do, I guess. I think that, you know, I'm proud of my achievements and I'm proud of the things that I've done. Um, I haven't wasted a day. Yeah, especially in the last 12 years. And I think that's what I feel proud of. But success to me, honestly, would probably be unachievable or even it would take a long time to achieve because what I see as success is probably making sure that farmers are paid fairly or making sure that GMOs are banned, you know, and to ensure that you know, food labeling or food that's imported and sold to kids um, are better managed and better regulated. So these are things that I think is successful, but it's not something that I alone can achieve. And I think it's, yeah, it's going to take some time and a collective work to actually be able to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. I have some quick fire questions for you. 
What are the ways that you stay grounded and take care of yourself? Um, this one's easy, sleep. I have a pretty good sleep regimen. I make sure that I sleep. <laughs> That's a good one. What do you believe are your true strengths? And tacked onto that, a second question, what are you working on? In other words, improvements. Mm. Um, I guess I have a very, I mean, some would call it stubbornness, but I think it's called strong conviction. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, fixed to it. Uh, if I decide on something and what am I working on? Um, two main things. One is I get really deep in my head when I'm creating or, you know, and then I end up failing to take time to communicate. So um, that might be one of them. And then the other is probably that I don't like conflicts and confrontations and it gets me super nervous. <laughs> and so I t tend to steer away from just any kind of confrontations, but I think it sometimes it is important. Um, yeah. I hear you on that conflict avoidance. I, I, I feel the same. What's the best advice that you've received in business? Well, it's, kind of a follow-up to your previous question know your strengths but also work on your weaknesses so i think what that really means is that yeah milk your strengths you know know it and like show it off but like don't rest on your laurels as well just keep working on what you're not so good at which women inspire you oh there's so many but uh the one that i think has been inspiring me since I started in this journey was Dr. Vandana Shiva. And she's been fighting for farmer sovereignty and seed saving, fighting against GMOs and the big corps for like past four or five decades. And honestly, her message still resonates more than ever. Thank you. And I'll put some details of her in the show notes as well. Best decision? Closing the restaurant in late 2019, right before <laughs> COVID. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, goodness, that was uh, serendipity. Do you have a favorite saying or a life philosophy? Ooh, um, I think people will think that this is my life philosophy. Every day's act of eating is an act of creating freedom, which is Dr. Vandana Shiva's quote. But recently I just came across another one, but I don't really know who said it. The bone is not the reward. Digging for the bone is a reward. So I really love the idea that it's not really about the end goal. Um, it's not about competition or who wins or who's first, but it is a process of learning how to get better. You know, that is the bone. So inspiring. It has been such a pleasure having this conversation with you and just learning from you and I feel as though I've learned so much in this short chat Peggy thank you so much thank you Fiona and that ends our podcast thank you Peggy you can find out more via zerofoodprintasia.org you can also find Peggy on LinkedIn and on Instagram she's at that Peggy Chan there's also at zerofoodprint.asia on Insta. All of these links and more will be in the show notes. You can also find us on socials, including Twitter at WearShoesPod and on Instagram, WearShoesPodcast, with an underscore between all three words. If you'd like our team to produce a podcast for you, or if you'd like to recommend a guest for Wear Shoes, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us via www.thepodcastpeople.co. This podcast was edited by Antonio Mattesini. Thank you, Antonio. 
My name's Fiona Mattesini. This is Wear Shoes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>